Good evening, everybody. My name is John Norris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, open it up. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I say this almost every week. It will help if you can see the text for yourself to know that this is what the Lord is saying and not just some guy on the stage. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Let's read it together. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the church. And pray that you would make us faithful as a church to do what you've called us to do with the message that you've given us to proclaim. Lord, would you help us tonight? I pray that we would see what you have to say with our own eyes tonight. Not just the eyes in our head, but the eyes of our heart that we would trust. And that our confidence in you would grow. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So this text tonight is about the church's job, and it's about the church's message. And those two things are related. They're related because the church has a job. It's to proclaim a message, and it's to defend a message. And we're going to see those two things in the text. We're going to talk about the church's job. That's verses 14 through 15. And then we're going to look at the heart of the church's message in verse 16. So that's where we're going tonight. The church's job, and then the heart of the church's message. So let's talk about the church's job. It's there in verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. He's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So you see Paul says, here's why I'm writing these things. I'm writing these things so that if I don't come to you right away, you'll know how you ought to behave in the church. It's important. We're, we're a household of God. That's what he says about the church. We're a household. We're like a family. It's just that we're from all different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ages, and we have to figure out how to relate to one another. And Paul's saying, that's why I've written this letter. That's what this letter is about. It's how the household of God should behave. And that's why we're in it together as a church. And he clarifies, the household of God, do you see this? Is the church of the living God. It's the church of the living God. He's an active God. He's not dead. 
he's alive. He's not like idols. Idols are carved images. They have eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Mouths, but they cannot speak. This God, our God, is alive, which means he's active. He's sustaining the universe now. He's active in this room right now. We wouldn't be here if he wasn't, and our hope that anything that happens tonight matters depends on God being alive among us. And that's what he is. He's the living God, and this is his church. It's the church of the living God. Now notice, the household of God, you see that in verse 15, is the church. The household of God is the church. Now several weeks ago, we made a distinction. When the New Testament talks about church, sometimes it's talking about the universal church, which means all Christians everywhere. They are members of the universal church, but sometimes the New Testament talks about church as in a local church, and there are many local churches in this city. They have different leaders, different members. There's a church that meets in the morning. There are several churches that meet here during the day. There's another English-speaking church, Align Evangelical Congregation. They meet on Saturday mornings. They are members of the universal church, but they're a different local church than this one. Now, when Paul says, I'm writing to you so that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church, which one is he talking about? Is he talking about the universal church, or is he talking about the local church? That's a tricky question. He's talking about both. If you're in the household of God, you're a Christian, you're in. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you are a part of the household of God. But the instructions that Paul is giving here about how one ought to behave in the household of God can only be carried out by local churches. Do you see that? He's talking to all Christians in the household of God, and he's giving instructions about how we should behave in the household of God, but his instructions can only be carried out by local churches. I mean, the last two weeks, Luke preached on elders, that's verses 1 through 7 in chapter 3. Last week, I preached on deacons, verses 8 through 13, and those are instructions for local churches. The universal church doesn't have pastors. There's not a pastor of every Christian. Local churches do. And here's why I'm pointing this out. Paul does not envision members of the household of God apart from local churches. That's not a category that Paul has. Members of the universal church, Christians who are just kind of out there who aren't members of particular local churches. When he thinks household of God, he gives instructions on how local churches should relate to one another. And I bring this up because it is a concern that many Christians, I was one for a very long time, floating between churches, not accountable to any members or any particular leadership, 
are you? That's the question. Do you have a local church? The pastors know who you are. You know who they are. They're keeping watch over your soul. Because in Paul's mind, that's what it means to be in the household of God. He doesn't have a category for Christians out there apart from local churches. And such local churches are, we're going on in verse 15, a pillar, do you see that? And buttress of the truth. So pillar and buttress are architecture words. They're building words. A pillar holds things up. So if you've got a pillar, you're holding up a roof, you can hold up a statue, you can hold up a monument, but that's what pillars do. They lift things up high. And a buttress, it's a piece of architecture that keeps that thing that the pillar is holding up from falling over. So it's like a support either from weight or wind, a buttress holds what the pillar is holding up high, it supports it. Some people, th that word buttress, some people think it actually means a defensive wall, like around a castle or a city. But the same sense is there either way. The church is a pillar, it holds the truth up, and it supports the truth or it defends the truth. Now, when we hold up truth, this is, this is a job description for the church. When the church holds up the truth like a pillar, we're doing it for those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. If you're a Christian, you need the truth to be held up to you as much today as you ever have. You need to see the truth as much today as you did the day that you believed. John 17, 17, Jesus says this. He's praying to his Father, and he prays, Father, sanctify them, my disciples. Sanctify them. Another way to say that is make them holy in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is saying the way that Christians, people who already trust in him, become more holy, the way we become more like him is through the truth. So churches, the, what we're doing as we gather together is we're trying to hold the truth up because we need it. We need to see the truth fresh every week because that's how God makes us holy, when we see the truth and we believe it. As individuals, if you're a member of this church, that's how you care for other members, is you hold up the truth for them to see and to believe, because that's how Jesus is going to make them holy. We don't just hold up the truth, though, for those who are inside. Like a pillar, the church holds up the truth for those who are outside of the church. Because what we have, church, is what everyone must know if they're going to be saved. We have the truth that saves everlasting souls. It must be seen to be believed. And in believing, God saves people. That's why we hold up the truth. There was a time when you didn't know God and someone held the truth up for you to see and you believed and God saved you. 
Let's not fall into, tra- into the trap of thinking that this is for the church only. This is what the world needs, and we have it. We hold it up for all to see like a pillar. The church is a pillar of the truth. And not only do we hold the truth up like a pillar, we protect the truth. We support it like a buttress or a defense wall around a castle. Do you see that in the text? We're a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So what do we mean when we say we protect the truth? Or we defend it? We don't mean that God's word is weak and it needs our help. That's not what we mean when we say we defend the truth. We're not saying that the gospel doesn't have enough power to save people until we add our own input. That's not what we're saying. A man named Augustine, he was a pastor in the 300s and 400s AD in North Africa. He said this, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it out. It will defend itself. Our job is to let the truth out. Many of us feel scared when we're going to share the gospel or the truth with somebody because we feel like we need to be ready to answer any question they might have. I would share with them, but what if they ask me a hard question I don't know the answer for? It's gonna, I'm going to look stupid. The gospel looks stupid. What if they've got an objection? And Augustine is saying, let it out. The truth we have is like a lion that devours unbelief. And that's our job, to let it out. So we don't defend the truth because it isn't strong enough on its own. The truth is powerful to save. And therefore we defend it from changing so that it loses its power to save. That's what we mean when we say we defend the truth. We're trying to make sure that the lion is not replaced with a kitten. It's powerful on its own, and so we dare not let it be changed. If you had a stone, you had a stone that could heal anyone of all their sicknesses if they just looked at it, what would you do with that stone? Would you hide it? Would you keep it down low? you would hold it as high as you could and you would say, look at this stone, everybody. You can be healed. That's what you'd do. You'd hold it up for everyone to see. But what if there were enemies who were trying to take that stone from you, change it out with another one, or grab hold of it and scuff it up? You would defend it. Not because the stone needed your help to heal people, but because it cannot be changed if it's going to. And that's how the gospel is. We don't defend the truth because it's not powerful to save, but because it's the only thing that saves. And we dare not let it be changed. That's what it means to defend the truth that we don't let it be substituted with something that cannot save. And there will be pressure, and it's the reason that Paul writes like this, there will be pressure 
for us to feel like we need to change the truth. It's going to come from within us, our own soul, our own sinful hearts are often opposed to what is true. This world does not like the truth that we have. We know Satan for sure doesn't like it. And there will be pressure to change it, change the truth. Truth like men and women are sinners. No one wants to hear that. We're not saying just that men and women sometimes make bad choices. We're all kind of lost out there. It's true. But we are wicked. The choices we make, the feelings we feel, the thoughts we have, the things we do, they are evil and in rebellion against God. You'll feel pressure from people not to talk like that. And you won't want to talk like that because you don't want people to be upset. There will be pressure to change the truth. Every generation is going to experience pressure to diminish the anger of God towards sin and his justice, to diminish the reality of God's justice in hell. We will feel within our souls a desire to lessen Christ's demands for repentance and the fact that when Christ calls a man, he calls him to die. His claim on us is total. You come to me and my discipleship is you die to everything you thought your life would be in this world and submit to my goodwill for your life. There will be pressure. There will be pressure to lessen our dependence on God's grace. We'll feel it from within and from without. The desire to add our little bit to saving ourselves. Or on the other hand, taking God's grace as permission to do evil. The truth matters. If you change it, it's not true anymore. If you change the good news, it's not good news. And that's why the church is a buttress of the truth. We defend the truth because it's the only truth that can really save. So as a church, from this text, we're seeing that we hold the truth up for those inside the church to see and those outside the church to see, and we defend it from being changed or substituted with anything less than what saves. So, so here's where the argument is going, what Paul's saying. He's saying in verses 14 and 15, I'm writing to you so that you'd know how to behave in the household of God because you're the church of the living God. And your job is to hold up the truth and to support it. That's an important job. And your health as a church, the way you relate to one another, is going to have an effect on how well you do that. Hold up the truth and defend it. So, what's at the heart of the church's message? That's what verse 16 is about. The heart of the church's message. Verse 16 says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, that word mystery, whenever Paul uses the word mystery, he doesn't mean a secret. Like, we read mystery novels, and that means we don't know what's going to happen at the end. When we, when we use the word mystery, it's a mystery. It means we don't know. 
When Paul uses that word, he's always talking about a truth that people didn't know before, but has now been revealed to us in Jesus. So that's the connection between verses 15 and 16. If you're wondering, where's he going here in verse 16? He's saying the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth, and great indeed is the truth that God has revealed to us. He's going to tell us what that truth is in a second. But notice one more thing. He calls it the mystery of godliness. That surprised me. That word godliness in the New Testament is always talking about our holy living. So he's saying the truth I am giving, the truth that God has revealed is truth that changes people. We should remember that. The gospel that we proclaim changes people. It has that power to make people holy. So here's the mystery. It's a poem. You can look in your text. Sometimes it's spaced differently. It's because this is a poem. He's going to tell us what the mystery of godliness is. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. (laughs) So what is the mystery of godliness? It's a he. It's a person. That's the truth that God has revealed. Not just facts. He has revealed a person, Jesus. It's a reminder to us. Our desire is to know God as much as we can. When we say that, we don't mean to know as many facts as we can. What we mean is we want to know this book as well as we can so that we can know a person. That's what will transform your life. It's not just memorizing scripture. It's knowing Jesus through it. It's not just doing Bible studies. It's knowing a person through it. That's what will transform you. The mystery of godliness is a person. He was manifested in the flesh. This means Jesus, the Son of God, was revealed to us. Manifested means revealed as a man. John 1.14 is talking about the Word, the Word of God, God who is the Word. And it says, He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The Son of God became one of us. It's one of the most wonderful things we could ever imagine. The Son of God became like us. Philippians 2.6 says it this way. Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when... 1 Timothy 3 is saying he was manifested in the flesh. It's saying God the Son became a man to reveal what God is like to us, to human beings. And in being a man, he was able to do something he was not before he was a man, which is to die. That's what he came to do. He came to die, to die for sinners. 
See, that's the truth we are talking about that we might feel the need to diminish, that we are sinners. We've done terrible wickedness. We have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to our core selfish. And God is just. He's always just. He always does what's right. And his justice means we deserve to die. And so Jesus became a man to die in the place of sinners. He was revealed in the flesh to do what we could not do for ourselves. He took our punishment by dying. Now, did he stay dead? No. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Paul is talking about Jesus' resurrection there when he says he was vindicated by the Spirit. And we know that because of Romans 1-4. Listen to this. You don't have to turn there. Romans 1-4, he uses very similar language. Paul says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So when Jesus was raised from the dead by the Spirit, that was God vindicating him. That word vindicated that you see in your text of 1 Timothy 3, almost everywhere else in your New Testament, it's translated as justified, which means declared to be righteous. Because Jesus died like a sinner. A lot of people have a problem with Christianity because they say, oh, you, you say the most holy man died on a cross? That's what happens to sinners. That's the point, right? But when he was raised from the dead by the Spirit, that was God saying, righteous. He died like a sinner, but he's righteous. That's God's judgment over Jesus' life. And that judgment can count for you. That's the amazing thing here. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God said, justified, righteous. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, he will say that to you. Not because you actually are righteous, but because he's counting the righteousness of Jesus for you. That's the miracle of what we believe. Jesus in our place. He was vindicated. Verse 16 keeps going. It says, he was seen by angels. That's talking about good angels and fallen angels. He was recognized not just in this world, but in the spiritual world that we can't see. He was recognized to be the Lord of all. Satan and demons were disarmed by Jesus. Do you know what their biggest weapon is? It's not to scare you to jump out of dark places at you. Their biggest weapon is your unforgiven sin. And Jesus took it out of their hands. He's seen by the angels. He's Lord of all. Keep going. Verse 16. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. When Paul uses the word nations, he's talking about all the ethnicities of the world. And that's who this message is for. It's not just for your particular tribe, my particular tribe. It's for all the nations of the world. 
Jesus dying in your place, Jesus being raised, declared righteous for you, is for all the people of the world. And it becomes there when they believe in him, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. We want to be a light here for the nations. I just remember that. People at work, people you see going across the street, you might think, I don't like those people. Their people are at war with my people, or I've just seen them be rude most of the time. This is for them. Jesus wants all the peoples to know him. They become his by faith. Verse 16 concludes this way. Taken up in glory. Now, this is not in chronological order. Verse 16 is not giving us the story of Jesus' life in the right timing of things because he was taken up into glory before he was believed on in the world. But I think the reason that Paul says it last is to remind us, Jesus, as you go, remember, Jesus is glorified right now. He's not just your average Joe. He is glorified in the presence of God and ruling over all of history right now. He's ruling over history to make sure that those who trust in him are kept to the end. And if you trust him, you'll become like him in his glory. So that's the heart of the church's message. That's what this poem is getting at. We have a Jesus, one of us, who died in our place, vindicated. He's raised, righteous. And for all the nations of the world, they can know him. And that righteous claim can be placed on their life by faith. And he's in glory, ruling for our good. And someday, he will make you like he is. So Paul is writing this so that we as a church would know how we ought to behave. We, we as a church together, we, we are a pillar and buttress for the truth. I hope you know that. Together, we hold the truth up, we defend the truth together. And Paul's saying the way you relate, it matters. The health of this church matters for how we show and protect the truth. And that truth is the most precious truth in the universe. We have a Savior, a person who forgives our sins, declares us righteous, and will make us like him someday. The world needs to know that, so let's hold it up and defend it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your church. Would you make us a church submitted to your word who care for one another, who hold up the truth for one another to believe that together when we gather like this, you would change us, help us to see the truth. When we're scattered, we would help one another trust the truth. That together, our being together, people from all over the world, together worshiping one Lord would be a witness to the world, a pillar holding up the truth. 
that you are real. You do change people. And you put them into a family together no matter where they've come from or what they've done. Make us a pillar and a defense of the truth. Would we love that you save? Would we be watchful that the truth that saves is not lost? Please, Lord, we rely on your grace and we thank you for the precious truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.